Hello and welcome to this episode of Pop Culture Quorum Deo. We appreciate you downloading and taking the time to listen to this episode. My name is Jeff and I'm here with my friend Jared and we are your hosts. Since this is one of our early episodes, we want to be clear about what we're doing here and why we're doing it and who we are. And we thought the best way to accomplish that would be to go through those specific questions. And so, Jared, I'm going to ask you and then I'll answer from uh, my part the same three quick questions about what it is that motivated us to create the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. So number one, why are we doing this podcast, Jared? Basically discipleship. You know, Christians are pretty much watching these movies that we're interacting with for the most part. Um, So discipleship is part of it um, to train Christians how to interact with popular culture and also how the gospel answers the various idols that our culture presents. You know, pop pop culture presents basically the the dominating ideas that are going on and ideologies um, in our culture. And so it's kind of a, a pulse of our society and the pulse of our congregations and the pulse of, of our communities. Um, it's presented in popular culture. And not only that, but it, it shows you the next few years down the road, you know, what's coming down the pipe as well. And so by being able to interact with that, it trains Christians how to interact with their neighbors, how to interact with politics, how to interact with basically every avenue of life that they interact with on a daily basis. Um, it shows them how to apply the gospel to that. And the second reason is so not only, not only discipleship, but also to engage unbelievers with the gospel to show how, you know, pop culture many in many ways re- recognizes a lot of the same evil that the Bible does, that there that there's something wrong with the world. Now, they often misdiagnose what is wrong with the world, and so they thus get the remedy wrong as well. When Christians um, recognize where the where what is wrong is displayed incorrectly, they can correct it by showing that it's really sin is the issue and we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. And so um, we can engage folks with the gospel through this podcast and train our hearers as well how to engage their neighbors. Uh, I'm very interested in engaging with story as a part of discipleship. I think history is a story that God is telling about his son Jesus and image bearers, fallen though they may be, like you and I and the people who are creating uh, what we call pop culture, the songs and the shows and the movies and whatnot, they can't help but tell stories within the context of that broader story. Sometimes those stories are false. Sometimes those stories are true. Most often they're a mixed bag. And so as thinking Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're to, to uh, love the Lord our God with our minds. We're we're interested in helping people say, here's where I see the truth of the living God. Here's where I see the beauty of the gospel. Here's where I see the goodness of the kingdom uh, poking through or shining through. And here are lies that I see that need to be rejected. And so it's good for Christians to learn how to consume pop culture in a way that helps them love the good and hate the evil. Uh, I do like you said, want to want to create bridges into the world of my lost neighbor who I'm called to love with the gospel and meeting him in the stories that he loves is a common ground that can be useful to explain the gospel to him. Of course, it, it's not going to be saving. It is the power of God uh, present in the preaching of the gospel that saves. But nonetheless, we have models in the Bible of Paul quoting poets and other aspects of the culture that was known in the day as, as a means by which he would he would try to help his audience see the gospel as understandable. And so we want to do that through, you know, these stories that we consume and that we talk about across lots of different relationships. And then lastly, the, the thing I'm going to add, Jared, is I also want to I want to encourage believers who are going to be listening to stories, who are going to be engaging with pop culture on some level because it's the air we breathe. I want them to find the joy of seeing the goodness of the Lord reflected in the stories told by the people who bear his image. I want them to see the glory 
glory of God afresh in uh, the the things that come out uh, of Hollywood and and other places around our country that often are thought of as just moral wastelands, but kind of put under a microscope. You start to see that the the power of the image of God in which these people were created is so irrepressible that it it, it beams out constantly, even in in places we wouldn't expect. So that's why I'm interested in doing it, and I fully affirm what you said there uh, in your answer as well. That begs the question, though, I think, to follow up. Should Christians watch secular movies? You and I have identified the first several movies we're going to look at. Uh, they're, they're not facing the giants or God is not dead. These come from people who aren't trying to give a winsome witness for Jesus Christ. So why should Christians or should Christians watch secular movies? Well, we, I wouldn't say that they necessarily should. I, I'm saying that they that they can um, if their conscience allows them. You know, we, we don't want anyone who's listening to this to violate their conscience. You have to know your own heart um, and and what your various uh, temptations are. Um, we are saying that, that I mean, Jeff and I obviously believe that we are free in Christ to watch these movies, and we want to watch them in such a way that we recognize, that we glorify the Lord, that we recognize, as Jeff said, God's uh, image that is present in man and God's fingerprints that are displayed by his image bearers. And, and you know, our, our goal in, in uh, interacting with popular culture is to basically take those fingerprints where sinful man has has basically tried to disconnect those fingerprints from God um, by not acknowledging him. We're saying, no, 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 these fingerprints are God's fingerprints, and we're trying to connect them back to God in light of the finished work of Christ, in light of the redeeming work of Christ, and what God has communicated through his inerrant word about history, about mankind, about what is wrong with the world, and who's going to fix it. And so, um, you know, that that's part of um, the reason as well why while we're doing um, while we're doing this podcast, you got anything to add to that, buddy? Well, I'm, I'm with you on saying we're not saying should, but we are saying possibly at least can. Uh, and I just want to elaborate on that for a second. There is much in the Bible about what you choose to put in front of your eyes, and specifically, there's a lot of prohibitions about putting worthless things in front of your eyes. But the Bible assumes that a Christian conscience, directed by the Holy Spirit, and you know, sort of formed positively and helped by a local body of believers will fill in what it means to identify something as worthless or holding worth. And so what we're saying is there's there's an open door in Scripture to say, that since there's no thou shalt not watch Netflix, that it's at least open for consideration that Christians can watch at least some things on Netflix. And we're trying to thread that line faithfully. We want to be people who know the, the world that we're called to engage with the gospel, but we also don't want to be people who just swim in the filth of toxic pop culture. And so I just want to say we're open to feedback. We're open to pushback. I'm, I'm happy to hear your counsel. The other thing I want to say is to the person listening to this who says, you know, I heard Jared tell me to obey my conscience. Yeah, you really need to do that. So we want to stress that if your conscience is telling you don't watch this film, don't watch this film. But the other caution I want to add is don't decide what your conscience is telling you in a vacuum. You, Your conscience is going to be much more more open to turning on Game of Thrones sitting alone in your apartment at 10.30 p.m. than it would be when you have invited your godly grandmother and two of the elders from your church over for dinner. And so you want to be deciding what your conscience is telling you in concert with the testimony and the encouragement and the admonition of a local church body. So don't don't treat this as a solo project. Solo Christianity is not present in the Bible in terms of being disconnected from a church and local body and you 
don't want to approach consuming media produced by secular minds as if you're the only voice who needs to speak into this. If it, you know, it's just me and God and my conscience, and we'll figure it out. Get godly people in your life. Get older people, people from different age ranges, different uh, backgrounds. Get them engaged in this conversation you're having with yourself about what you can find acceptable to watch. Good word. Good word. Uh, lastly, just to introduce ourselves, who are we, Jared? And why don't you take that question first? Who are you? Um, I'm Jared. I've been a Christian since I was. Uh, my name's Jared Moore. I've been a Christian since I was about 17 years of age. I was raised in church my whole life, saved at 17, and uh, God changed my life and uh, committed to the ministry at an early age, year or two after I was made that profession of faith, and um, been in ministry now for, I think this is 18th year of uh, ministry in a Southern Baptist context, and I'm currently the pastor of Homestead Baptist in Crossville, Tennessee, and I'm a, a PhD candidate at Southern Baptist Theological seminary and a greater there. And uh, I just want to bring honor and glory to the Lord. You know, the, our greatest goal here is to, you know, we, we want to benefit the church. We want to help, we want to train Christians to think biblically about their culture. And we believe that if you approach pop culture the way that we hopefully are training you through this podcast, that you'll not only approach pop culture in a godly way, you'll approach all of life um, with a Christian worldview. Well, I am Jeff Wright, and I have known Jared since in our days in elementary school, we became friends in middle school. I'm the product of a household that had good things to say about Jesus, had a believing mother who took me to church my whole life, and I experienced a conversion somewhere between my childhood years and my early teenage days. Um, I'm someone who's always wrestled with assurance and, and knowing because I was taught to believe that my assurance was rooted in how sincere I was when I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I always found in my heart anyway that there was room to suspect there was insincerity at some level. And and uh, thankfully, I have learned to see that my salvation is found in looking to Jesus Christ and His finished work. But that leaves me in a place where I can't say this date I was saved. But uh, thankfully, there has been uh, evidence of the work of the Spirit in my life. The local church that I grew up in, as well as the churches I've served vocationally, have seen evidence of grace there as well and have been a comfort to me in affirming that uh, I am one of Christ's people, even as His Spirit testifies that within me as well. Uh, I serve vocationally as the pastor of Midway Baptist Church in Cookville, Tennessee. I am I'm super blessed to have that position. This is a better church than I deserve, and they are better to me uh, as a congregation than I deserve. Married to Christy, who is involved in classical Christian education. I'm assuming at some point in this show you will hear from her because I often go to her with the kind of conversations that Jared and I will be having. And then we have four kids, and my desire is, much like Jared said, to, to edify the church as much as it's possible and to redeem the time that, that many of us are spending engaging, consuming, discussing pop culture. You know, Jared said, we want to train you to um, see everything through a Christian worldview. I'm going to be happy if we model that well and that you begin to see a profitable way in your own thinking and watching and reading and listening to uh, to see the glory of Christ, because that's ultimately what we're all after. We want to see the glory of Christ made more fully known. That's our hope here. So in His grace, uh, hopefully we'll see that happen to some degree. Anything else there, Jared? I also am married and have four kids. Yeah, man, you better get that wife mentioned in there. You're going to get in trouble. I don't know. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> 
One more question. What's the deal with the name of your show? Well, that's a great question. When we say pop culture, we're using a phrase that has a nearly unlimited set of differing definitions. For the purpose of this podcast, we're defining pop culture as the exchange of ideas through mass media. So we want to talk about what the creators of popular books, music, shows, and particularly movies are asking us to think about when they release content. And what about Quorum Deo? Quorum Deo speaks to the essential element of what Jared and I want to do. The phrase means in the presence of God. Here's the late R.C. Sproul on the phrase's larger meaning. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing, and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There's no place so remote that we can escape His penetrating gaze. To be aware of the presence of God is to also be acutely aware of His sovereignty. The uniform experience of the saints is to recognize that if God is God, then He indeed is is sovereign. Living under divine sovereignty involves more, though, than a reluctant submission to sheer sovereignty that is motivated out of a fear of punishment. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices, oblations offered in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. So when someone creates an artifact of pop culture, some song or book or film, that creator does so in the presence of the creator. And every time you and I engage with that piece of culture, we're doing so in the presence of God. As believers, we want to do that well. And this podcast is an effort to help others do it well too. Just as a heads up, you'll be hearing this exact intro in each of our first five episodes so that we're clear about who we are and what we're hoping to accomplish. If you listen to more than one of those first five episodes, and we really hope you will, you can either listen to this introduction again or skip forward to the 13 or 14 minute mark with your podcast player and start listening to the discussion of the film for that episode. So, Jared, we're about to review a movie that is, it's a horror movie, and it is hard horror. I mean, this is not kid stuff that we're we're talking about here today with this film. And so, I thought we would do just a supplemental explanation of what our thinking is on why we chose a movie like this to review, what we think it has to offer a Christian, or, or how a Christian should uh, consider if it has anything to offer. And um, just want to run through a couple points on that. So, when you're thinking about watching a horror movie as a Christian. Let's just start. Can you justify watching horror as a Christian? I, be- I believe you can. Uh, in many in many ways, you know, pop culture is sometimes, sometimes muddied as far as the difference between good and evil, but in horror, in that genre, that's that's one uh, redeemable quality about the genre of horror is that, that usually there is a clear good and a clear evil, and in many cases, good wins out. Absolutely. So we live in a day that is very unwilling to identify evil as an objective reality. We, Unless, of course, we're talking about whatever the latest political trend is, right? So being uh, abusive to the environment, we'll say that's evil or, uh, you know, forcing someone to act uh, against whatever they understand their most authentic identity to be. We say that's evil. But when it comes down to saying this act, this crime even, was an act of evil, we're we're very reluctant just as a people to say, yeah, that is objectively evil. We look for psychological explanations. We look for um, sociological justifications to say, this person is actually sick. They're not evil. That's very much true. Sometimes people are sick and are acting from that in a way 
way that harms others. But we also want to say, as Christians, there is such a thing as evil. There is, in reality, things that set themselves up against the glory of God and the progress of His kingdom and the good of His image bearers that He has ordained in His grace. And so horror reminds us, no, for real, evil exists. And thankfully, as you mentioned, it should be opposed. And in fact, we should be opposing it. Horror kind of pushes that button for us. Oftentimes as well, I've got this quote actually from Brian Godawan. He talks about some of the benefits of horror in an interview that Tony Rinke did on Desiring God. You can find it. The article is titled, Do You Get It? And so you can just do a search for it there and find it. Um, but he, Godawan says, horror is often based on irony and the unveiling of evil that appears to be good. Like real life, in real life, evil monsters, as in abusers, rapists, and killers, use the disguise of good in order to capture and hurt the innocent. So using common images of safety to caution the innocent against naive trust is an excellent moral lesson. And so that's that's uh, one thing that horror does present is that um, oftentimes it is the, you know, it's the enemy that's hiding in plain sight, right? And, and, and forcing you as you watch that horror movie and you're on edge because you don't know who the, who the killer is or who the person is. But it's often someone who's in close proximity to the, um, to the person, um, to the person who's innocent, to the person who's fearful. And so it does kind of help you. Now, you, you, know, you know, it can it can encourage you to be paranoid if you're not if you're not careful, which would obviously be negative. But, you know, we shouldn't just be naive because we live in, in indeed, an evil world. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, folks who don't believe in evil still lock their doors at night, right? There's a reason why we do. Mm, for sure. It, it, it's, a, it's an internal contradiction in our culture. And thankfully, horror kind of sp- shines a spotlight on that. It, it's a useful spotlight in that sense. Um, the other thing I'm going to mention is that there is an avenue for loving my neighbor and loving my brother in watching horror. Again, with the caveat that your conscience, informed by the Word of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, and in conversation with the people of God in a specific local church, allows you to watch any particular horror movie. Just in general, horror raises fear, right? That's the nature of the genre. So it, it pulls fears out of my heart and asks me to consider them, uh, you know, Am, am I going to be safe? What determines whether or not I'm going to be safe? What happens when evil strikes out of the clear blue sky the way it so often does in uh, in the real world? But also with my neighbor, um, he's going to be wrestling with fears. And my brother in the church, he's going to have fears in his heart too. So horror gives us common ground to meet and talk about those things if we're intentional about doing so. I'm uh, thinking about people that you'll run into uh, at your office or your neighborhood get-together wherever you do your grocery shopping, um, who who don't know Jesus, don't love him, well, there's certain things that give you an ample opportunity to talk about his goodness. And sometimes it's fear, right? It, it's fears within him that him, excuse me, his kingdom and his righteous reign will address within them. I'm, I'm thinking about in our day, uh, horror movies ask a largely secular culture to say, are you really sure that nothing exists outside of the natural order? Because if the supernatural does exist, there could be some dangers to you there. I mean, it seems like 60% of new horror movies are built around the idea of demons and exorcism. I think part of that is a national, uh, I shouldn't say national, is a sort of cultural wrestling with the idea if we might not have thrown away some things we should have kept when we threw away the idea that there's something out there beyond the natural world. And for Christians, that's totally profitable because we can say, well, if, if you're open to the idea of demons, they belong to some sort of order. And if they're around, could there not be uh, a creator?
creator God, uh, who is also in the supernatural realm. Now, not only he certainly intervenes and acts within the natural realm, but it raises the possibility. Or you think about an age that has turned to science as its savior and technological advancement to do away with death and uh, poverty and human suffering. Well, horror movies do a good job of saying, can science do anything that will betray me? (laughs) Will the robots rise up and take over society? Will there be a virus unleashed we didn't see coming and it will change who we are as human creatures? What does it mean to be a human creature anyway if a virus can come and do that? Those are all questions that are really useful to a Christian in serving his neighbor uh, in terms of building a bridge into a conversation about the gospel. So I I think in the way that it asks us to deal with our fears, horror is helpful there as well. Hmm. That's a good point, buddy. I've I've got uh, one more quote here from Godawa that I'd like to read. This comes from the same article. He says, the moral purpose of the horror genre is to expose what evil is, reinforce our need for courage to fight evil, and to have a healthy, righteous fear instead of naive innocence when it comes to discernment in the world. Sounds like the Bible. God uses the horror genre to solicit righteous fear of evil and encourage repentance and righteous living. Beyond um, these examples, the the books of Daniel and Revelation are epic horror fantasies of blood and gore using symbolic horror monsters as an analogy for real life. That's what all horror does. It works as a metaphor for something else, like social commentary, underworld, spiritual truth, Jekyll and Hyde, or man's hubris, Frankenstein. God uses zombies and vampires as metaphors for spiritual evil in Scripture, like Micah 3, 1-3, Ezekiel 39, 18-19. God uses Frankenstein monsters as metaphors for political and social commentary, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Revelation 13, 1-2. One of God's favorite horror metaphors is cannibalism as a literary symbol, a spiritual apostasy. In Ezekiel 36, 13 through 14, Psalm 27, 2, Proverbs 30, verse 14, Jeremiah 19, 9, Zechariah 11, 9. This does not justify all horror stories ever told, far from it. It simply establishes the genre in broad terms as one that God uses. Therefore, it can be used with moral purpose, end quote. I, I thought that was a great uh, quote and great point to consider how God uses horror. I mean, have you 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 ever read listener? Have you ever read the Book of Revelation? You ever read how awful the depictions are of what it's going to be like when Christ? I mean, when Christ comes to rule and reign and wipes out all his enemies? Or hey, I mean, also it, the Book of Judges, just in recounting the history of the people of God. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it's all over the place in Scripture. I mean it's terrifying. It's to send us running, running not away from God. The fear is to send us running to God because who else can save us from God but God? You're here. Um, last thing I'm going to add in on this is just a, a word of honesty. People are watching horror movies in, in incredible numbers if uh, if the ticket sales are any indication. And that means Christians are watching horror movies. We're, we're recording this in the early days of 2018. 2017 was yet another year where you heard stories that Hollywood is out of ideas. They're making movies based on the, the board game Battleship. They just don't know what to do anymore. And the movies that that came out of 2017 that people resonated with and were willing to spend money on were Split and Get Out and It. That tells me it's not just secular people running to watch those films and resonating enough with them to give up hard-earned money for it. If Christians are watching this, let's be honest about it, let's be upfront about it, and let's subject it openly to the scrutiny of the, the Word of God and see what see what that scrutiny produces. So let's let's just put our cards on the table. Anything else, brother? That's it, buddy. Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started on this episode's movie. 
Okay, Jared, it's time for us to talk about 2017's It, the highest grossing horror movie of all time, at least as long as you don't adjust for inflation. Uh, the Exorcist, I think, still holds the crown if you adjust for inflation. But nonetheless, man, in a, in a in a world where Hollywood is really struggling to figure out how to tell stories people will show up and pay for, they came out in droves for this movie. And I think that means that uh, our neighbors are watching It. I think um, our brother brothers and sisters in the church, at least some of them are watching it. And there must be something going on in this story that people are resonating with and wanting to spend time with. And so with that in mind, I'm looking forward to talking through the film with you. My categorization of this film, and feel free to push back, modify, however, I think this is a dark, dark fairy tale. I think we're talking about a troll who's under a bridge. I think there's this scene where Sleeping Beauty is awoken with a kiss. And that this is in some ways uh, a modern version of what the Brothers Grimm were doing with their tales way back in the day. If you you know go back and look at those, they're terrifying. You know, I was looking mm-hmm. today, one of them is called The Girl with No Hands. Uh, they were doing grim stuff, pun intended. Any any objection to me classifying this as a fairy tale? No. It's a terror. It's very scary. <laughs> it's, yeah, super. I mean, it's I didn't think of it as a, I didn't think of it as wood when I was, saw the TV uh, miniseries when I was a kid. I, it, I still have those some of those scenes burned in my brain that terrified me for for 20 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, you know, I use this word carefully. I'm a fan of that miniseries. I don't know that I've watched a TV miniseries. You know, if there's a second out there compared to how many times I've watched that one. I mean, that's the only one I can ever remember rewatching. Set me up, though, to love this movie. I thought I might dislike it, but mm-hmm. I came away with a real appreciation for this film. That may sound surprising to our listeners. But before we leave genre, um, you're going to get a chance, listener, to, to laugh at my southern tongue. I think there's a specific genre this film belongs to that we ought to know. And it's one of the the things that makes this story powerful. And it turns out to be one of the things Stephen King, uh, the author of the source material for this film, it's one of the things he's best at doing as a writer. Uh, it's it's the genre of the Bildungsroman, which again, uh, particularly those of you who know uh, German and Germanic languages, I know you're going to laugh at me, but that is a technical term for a coming of age tale where the protagonist leaves childhood and enters adulthood. And you think about Stand By Me, you know, some of his stories. Stories like that, those things are based on like the body. Stephen King's really good at telling coming of age stories, even as he does so with a particularly dark twist or or filter on the story he's telling. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, some of those are many of those are considered classics, things we grew up watching, watching on TV many times. In, in some ways, this this film is in the the same family tree as Goonies. Now, somebody's going to hear me say that and lose their mind, but mm-hmm. Goonies, Stand by Me, it. I mean, the, the, a lot of what they're doing is very. Very similar. So, Jared, we want to walk pretty carefully through the the questions that Ted Trunell proposes in his work about how to analyze a film. Let's look at the conscious report. Uh, oh, that's right. Thank you. Knowing your heart and language. Let me give you a, uh, just a warning about language. Basically, every word you can imagine is said in this movie. Much foul language, much use of the Lord's name in vain. Um, sexual language, there, there's much uh, sexual discussion among these teenage boys. They say inappropriate things to one another. It reminds me of when I was a teenager before I was a Christian. I mean, I was a professed Christian. I was a Christian in name only. Um, but when I was a middle schooler, this is how me and my friends basically talk. I, I don't think that boys should talk that way, but the story is accurate concerning how non-Christian, unbelieving boys talk. Beverly is called many inappropriate names. Many rumors about her promiscuity are spoken about by the boys, but she's only kissed a boy. It's also hinted at that Beverly's father is sexually abusing her. He says creepy things to her, and he shows affection in creepy ways as well. And at one point, um, all the boys in Beverly 
usually, you know, they all go swimming and they're in their undies. Um, so all of them are seen in their undies. And at one point, Beverly's laying out in the sun and the boys are kind of mesmerized by her. Uh, again, coming of age boys. So they're staring at her and there's there's violence. There's very graphic violence, very graphic gore. And there's violence towards children. The first scene with Georgie is just heart wrenching. Um, and so you need to be aware of that. You know, listener, you need to know your conscience. You need to know your heart. We don't want you to violate your conscience. Um, so you need to be aware of these things going in that if you decide to watch these movies, that these things are there. So be aware of that. I would also just remind our listeners that this is hard horror. If you are s- sensitive to graphic images of terror, there is deeply, deeply disturbing stuff in this movie. You might want to take a pass. Maybe read the Wikipedia article if you really want to listen to the episode and want to know what's going on. Maybe just read a summary somewhere rather than watching. But you need to you know take into account that this is designed to, to scare your socks off and it's good at getting the job done. Yes, sir. Good hey, points. You know, Jared, on that note, we watched this movie together in the theater mm-hmm. with another friend. I remember I felt like I watched the creation of the psychopathic bully character <laughs> in this film uh, who was in that theater with us because I came up late to where you guys were sitting and our mutual friend Derek kind of nudged me and told me to look forward into the row before me. And I looked down and I saw a nursing baby taking a bottle from uh, from a sister, an older sister. And I you know, was surprised by that anyway. I just thought, man, who brings a baby to a horror movie? But then I panned down and sitting between mom and dad was a little boy who was, I mean, could he have been older than four? He, was probably, he wasn't in school. He, he was probably around four. I, you know, I have a four-year-old. I've raised a couple four-year-olds who have surpassed that age now. And I really think they would be in, you know, constant need of therapy if they watched this movie. I was blown away by that. And I thought, well, let's see what his psyche looks like in a couple of years. <laughs> That's sad, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, the TV series, can you imagine watching this movie as like the miniseries tortured me for years? I can't imagine watching this at four years old. No, I mean, my, my hope is that he is either blissfully unaware of how terrifying this stuff's supposed to be. I don't know how that's possible. I'm, I'm just talking about blind hope here. Or, you know, the, the darker version of that is that his parents have conditioned him to, to be desensitized to horror. I don't want that to be true, but that little boy, I just can't imagine he's not in for years of terrifying uh, mm-hmm. dreams over this film. Oh, yeah. On Pop Culture Quorum Deo, we try to look at the story broad strokes in terms of a Christian worldview and the categories of creation and fall, redemption and glorification. Won't you start that ball rolling for us, Jared? So in the the story begins, it's in the town of Derry. You know, children in large number and even some adults are being killed. Early on, we learn that a sinister clown is murdering these children. The story, kind of the victors, kind of the heroes are seven children um, who are bullied. You know, they're outcasts. And many, if you've ever been bullied, you probably resonate with this, which most I think most children growing up at some point are bullied, even bullies. If you were a bully in, in school, you were probably bullied at some point. So seven kids who are bullied find courage uh, through friendship to band together and go from victim to victor. They go from hunted to the hunters, uh, being willing to lay down their lives for one another and for other kids and adults in Derry. Well said. Uh, you know, this movie is deeply relatable, as you just pointed out. And the other thing that I think, I, I'm just going to go on record tonight. I think this is a powerful story. I think that explains, or excuse me, that can't be argued when you look at the numbers of sales that the book has generated, the the success of that earlier miniseries, and now the way people responded to this movie. This is a powerful story, whatever you want to say about it. Part of that's because it is so relatable, like you just said, and because there are really good things that are up for stake here. You know, if the clown wins, this good circle of friends who are legitimately good friends 
friends, the kind of friends that you hope to have throughout your life uh, will suffer because of that. And, and you know, the town is just a, a beautiful, quaint little town, the kind of uh, Edenic looking small town life that's probably not ever really existed. It certainly didn't even exist in this film. But nonetheless, which reminds us that there are good things in creation that need to be protected and uh, that, that evil threatens. Oh, amen. Just a, a couple other notes here to make sure that we're fleshing it out. So this clown you're talking about turns out to be this supernatural entity who shows up every 27 years, I think is right, mm-hmm. um, to feed on the fear of the people that it victimizes. Um, right. You you notice, we'll talk about this more later, but you notice that it's not just this 27-year cycle that is bringing evil into the lives of the people of Derry, but the fact that this evil has existed among them for so long, it is shaping them, or I should say malforming them and warping them in its own image. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, thankfully at the end, like you mentioned, this society known as the Losers Club, by choosing to, to oppose evil, ends up finding uh, real victory and, and doing real good mm-hmm. and driving them on. Monster away, so absolutely. Uh, so, Jared, to use True Now's words, what's the style and shape of this imaginary world? What's it like to land as an audience member in this in this world? Well, basically, it seems that almost all the adults are bad. Um, like you were talking about, that it is kind of shaping them negatively. Many of the adults, um, the adults are not the victors here. Um, it is the at least in this first part of the story. Now we know based on the book that these children eventually grow up and that there is a second second act coming, right? Yeah. That will correct a lot of this. That they're they're not they're not going to do what their parents did, basically, um, and allowing it to continue. And so this world is a a place where you know I, I resonated with the Losers Club because I was bullied incessantly in middle school, and uh, I was just a I was just a little kid, kind of small, I guess, for my age. So I can I can resonate with some of that. And so you know they're they're outcasts, and basically the bullies are portrayed negatively. They they're considered evil. And there's one one kid. Uh, is it Bowers? Bowers is the the ringleader. Yeah, the ringleader. He he's he really is evil. I mean, he's more than just a neighborhood bully. I mean, this he's is psychopathic. A, he's a psychopath. Like yeah. this kid's going to end up in prison or dead. But there is an ultimate evil that is encouraging um, the bullies, and that that is it. That is that supernatural creature. And so to live in this world for me, I would I would be one of the losers, right? And so and I think that's where I think that uh, King the way he portrays it that's how that's what he wants the reader to identify with he wants the the reader to see him or herself as part of that club as part of because I, I get I would I would I assume that King would argue that most of us feel like outcasts mm. at some point or another um, in this life and if you don't feel it in elementary school middle school high school wait till you get to college <laughs> and if it's not in, yeah if it's not in college then it'll be in your career world I I was li- uh, you know reading about pistol Pete and him you know he was the man for all those years. Um, best co- ba- college basketball player ever. Um, averaged like 36 points without a three-point line, you know, in college. That record's considered unbreakable. And then he played 10 years in the NBA, and then he hurt his knee and had to had to leave the professional career. He said he was crazy, deeply depressed for two years. You know, all that spotlight was gone. And so he felt like, well, I mean, he felt like an outcast. But he, he ended up finding Christ. And uh, it's, it's an interesting story. I mean, he ended up, he wanted to, he spent the rest of his life making much of Jesus. And actually, um, he dropped dead playing a pickup game in James Dobson's arms. Um, he he was there to tape a show for um, Focus on the Family, 
and he he ended up not he was born without a coronary artery one of the in his heart he lacked one and he died at 40 years of age wow. but it, it's just interesting that uh, you know at some point in our lives we all end up outcasts and so um, they're the heroes in this movie and I think that that's the world it is an it is an evil world but there is hope at the end of the, at the end of the tunnel it's going to come from the most unlikely place in that movie yeah well said well said I think that gets it some of the power of this movie it's universally relatable we can all see ourselves there but it also gives us um, realistic pictures of evil and hope that goes beyond that evil so with it in mind I think you've looked at the notes I prepared for the episode I've got a lot of stuff to say about what's good and true and awesome here that's a question number three would you mind if I took us through the the things I identified and let you riff on them and then Absolutely. add to it, whatever you don't think we've got to so yeah go ahead man I think it may be curious to listeners particularly if you don't think Christians should be watching horror and you're kind of trying to figure out man how can these guys justify this it may be curious to, to you to hear me say I think there's a lot of good here but I do so let me tell you what I think that is one we've kind of been on this already this movie gets childhood right it, it looks like and feels like what actual childhood looked and felt like there's dangers here you know of course we've talked about the scary murder clown and he's the he's the big threat but schoolyard bullies in this uh, in this world they're not the kind you can laugh off and, and say oh that's just kid stuff there's no real danger there it's just kids being kids I mean I knew people in, in my grade school my high school years who were the sort of people who would catch somebody alone who was vulnerable and take a pocket knife and carve something into their stomach if they had the chance and so King is telling the stories uh, of the world that you and I have all lived in hopefully we weren't all subject to that but those people pass us on the street uh, every day and, and truth be told those people live in my heart if it's not for the restraining and cultivating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ so mm. I think this movie gets childhood right in a lot of ways dark as it may be thoughts there Jared no I think you're right and I think it gets coming of age right are you going to speak of that here in a oh, second no. I mean go for it I'd love to hear your thoughts something interesting about this movie you know most most movies that talk of coming of age they they argue that you know puberty and having sex actually makes you an adult well this movie it's the, it doesn't argue that it, it, it argues that what makes someone an, an adult is being able to face and overcome their fears and um, I thought that was a very interesting point so a different route than most of the typical coming of age stories and movies that we see, especially the the comedies and stuff that are out there today. Something else that I thought was beneficial there is that we need to take responsibility for our fears. There, there's an emphasis in this movie on responsibility and putting putting the responsibility in the hands of kids is uh, at an early age, like the, like basically grow up, face your fears is very interesting, right? And and they're in this movie they're even portrayed as more adult than their parents in this sense because their parents the adults in this world have not faced those fears they yeah. have not dealt they have not dealt with the evil and daring so you've got these kids they're going to have to deal with it and um, you know we often cannot control what happens to us but we can control how we respond to what happens to us and that's what determines our maturity in many ways um, I, I thought that was a great point that King is making in this movie yeah I had not considered your point about sexuality versus responsibility at all, but you're man. That's right on. That's a that's a super great point. And it's not like this movie is blind to issues of sexuality. We've talked about Bev particularly. You know, she's a, a woman coming into her body and experiencing puberty, and she's threatened by a predator in her own household. I mean, King could have done that, but he tells a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think this movie gets friendship and grace right. What I mean by that is the Losers Club is legitimately 
committed to one another's well-being. Even when nobody else in town is, they enjoy a lot of good times together, but they also suffer together and they bear each other's burdens in real admirable fashion. I'm thinking about, you know, talking about Bev again. They they stand up for Bev's honor when Henry Bowers uh, makes a claim about, you know, having her as a sexual conquest. They go to her house to clean it up after it attacks her and covers her bathroom in blood. They, they get a mop and they clean it up because it doesn't get to have the final say in her life. And of course, they they join Bill in hunting it down. Mm-hmm. But I, I also say that they, they show real grace to one another. One mm-hmm. of the first scenes we get is that Bev realizes Ben, who's a new kid, hasn't had anybody sign his yearbook yet. So she does it. And she does it in a way that restores his dignity. She doesn't patronize him. She just kind of mm-hmm. engages with him in, uh, you know, I don't want to say flirtatious, but just in a way that a young woman and a young man would. And he's not diminished for that encounter. And uh, I think he's quite happy to have her signature. Later on, Mike, who's the only uh, black kid in the group of the Losers Club, he gets ambushed by Henry Bowers' gang. And at that point in the film, Mike is homeschooled. He's not part of their crew, but they recognize what's going on and they run to defend him. Mm-hmm. Um, they bring him into their number when they're done. They, um, you know, I already mentioned that when Bev's reputation's assaulted, they they defend her honor. And then Ben tells, uh, not not Ben, it was. Was it being one of the one of the kids tells them we never believe those rumors anyway, hmm. and so they they're good friends and they're good at showing grace and supporting one another. I like mm-hmm. these kids. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean the need for friendship, the need for community. Like these kids, it's like these kids are outcasts until they join the losers club. Like there is a, I mean they're still losers, but being being losers with other losers is actually pretty cool. You, <laughs> you know, you, you can thrive in that environment, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what this, and I mean that. They do. That's a good point. I uh, I don't want to say that they they're, they're they're good kids in the sense of like doing these good things to each other, but they're not sort of one dimensional Mary Sues who are just poor innocent little victims. I mean, trash mouth Tozer cusses like a sailor the whole time and is really mm-hmm. annoying. And yep. you've got a kid who's got a domineering mother who you know he's taking a ton of pills because she tells him to, and it's not like he's a druggie or anything. But I mean, this kid's really stressed because of this person who's supposed to be taking care of him, keeping mm-hmm. him you know on. Medicine all the time and domineering him. They're realistic characters. They have flaws uh-huh. and they have weaknesses and they have and they fail, but they are nonetheless, as you said, pretty good exemplars of what it's like to, to be in community with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a positive. It sounds weird, but this is a positive in that this movie gets evil right. Mm-hmm. I am told that G.K. Chesterton said something like, it's a truly evil book that has no evil characters in it. And for whatever weaknesses somebody in our audience might say this story has, it's not guilty of that offense that Chesterton identified. Yeah, we, we've talked about the clown, but this movie, maybe maybe the bigger monster in this movie is a town that uh, has looked at evil mm. and decided to turn their heads. And, you know, I mean, we, we literally see them do that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, kids are accosted, and the adults who could intervene and do something just look away. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they're under the thrall of it, it seems, seems but we, we get the sense that this is a willing enthrallment that they've, they've just kept postering over the previous missing child poster and carried on with their lives and the mm-hmm. way that that's shaped them has left them you know reduced as humans they're 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 less human than they could be because they've tolerated this evil among themselves it, it shows that evil isn't containable so the monster disappears for 27 years at a time but you know like yeast through a lump that evil spreads even when its evil presence isn't there so these people became evil in response to the evil living among uh, them evils corrupting it doesn't stay contained despite how much we 
like to think that we can sort of nurture one secret sin or wickedness um, mm. and keep it isolated from the rest of our lives. It's going to get out and it's going to run icy, toxic tendrils through every part of your life. Derry shows that. Lastly, I, this is the part I love the most about this movie. It shows the, uh, the, the shape of cosmic history in that evil in this movie is its own undoing. Mm. So Pennywise is super duper powerful and has all the resources of whatever kind of supernatural creature he is. But he signs his own death warrant when he takes Georgie Denbro because Georgie's big brother, who loves him, Bill, won't stand for that offense to go unaddressed. Mm -hmm. And so in this atrocious act of killing this little boy, and man, does Muschietti and Skarsgård and the little boy playing Georgie, I mean, they get the full potential out of how terrifying and heartbreaking that scene is. Oh, yeah. In that atrocious, yeah, in in that atrocious display of, you know, just hunger and power, Pennywise creates the thing, the person who's Mm -hmm. going to be his undoing. And I just rejoice that Mm -hmm. that's how the story of reality actually played out. Yeah, it's like Satan entering Judas, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you you kill the one guy who's a threat to you and you think you've won, and Mm -hmm. the act of killing him ends up being the means by which you're cast out and and thrown Mm -hmm. into judgment. Absolutely. Then lastly, this movie gets bravery right. You've hit on a lot of this, but this Losers Club, particularly Bill, takes it upon themselves to do what's right, oppose evil when nobody else is going to, Not you know, when the people who are supposed to mm-hmm. aren't willing to, even though they feel powerless. And uh, Bill particularly is this model of courage in his decision to be brave despite his fear. You know, I talk with my kids a lot about how other parents are doing this too. You know, being brave, being heroic isn't a matter of never being afraid, but it's a matter of doing what's right when you are afraid. And Bill is such a good model of that, man. And when he does that, his friends are inspired to join in with him. And so it's weird for me to say this, but there's a real moral fiber uh, and even a moral nobility to the characters in this movie that you're supposed to root for. And uh, I think that's the strength of the film. Mm, so what, did I I cover, what didn't I cover there? What else is, is good and true here? I think you covered it all, brother. Uh, then, got it. then what's distorted, evil, and false? What's idolatrous? Um, I would say that it misdiagnoses as far as where evil is. You know, the as I praise the emphasis on personal responsibility, you know, th- this movie, it seems that salvation is in conquering your fears and that you can do that. But when in reality, see, in, in this movie, I see myself, and I think this is what King wants me to do. I see myself as part of the Losers Club. But, you know, the Bible says that I'm it. Oh, good point, man. Good you know point. what I'm saying? The Bible says that I am it, that I am the monster, and um, that do because I'm a sinner, because I'm in rebellion against God. And this, so this movie puts putting evil outside of the heroes. The reality is, is that when I look in the mirror, you know, apart from Christ, I, I am the monster. And so we must correct that, correct that misdiagnosis, the evil being outside of us. The evil is within us. You're here. Um, and because the evil is misdiagnosed in this movie, the remedy is misdiagnosed as well. You know, our friends, as important as they are, and as important as community is, folks can sacrifice themselves for us all day long, but it will not save us because they can't save us from us. We need, we need, that's the miracle of Jesus Christ and the amazing thing that he has done for us in coming and becoming us, where he became us. He didn't become the monster. He became human, but he was treated like a monster on the cross so that we, the true monsters, might go free. And, he, and you know, we he, need, he straight up bore the full legal guilt of every monster and monstrous act among his people for all of human history. You know, he, he became a monster in the legal sense yeah. of the, the, the guilt of it. Amen. Amen. Yeah, he was treated just, I mean, 
mean, you, I mean, we often, I, f- I think that we often see ourselves as like these, you know, the, these kids, even though they're sinners, obviously anybody watching this movie would look at these kids and say they're sinners. They're, I don't know that folks would say they're bad kids. Oh, I said so, earlier, they're, they're good kids. Yeah, uh, they're good kids. They're, they're, and so we, you know, Christians looking at these guys, we probably see ourselves in this movie. We'd say, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm like, I'm like these guys, I'm a sinner and I'm still a good person, but I'm, but the way the Bible portrays sinners is in rebellion against God. You know, we need, we need someone who is like us, yet not a monster like us to save us. And so mm-hmm. that's what we find in, in Jesus Christ, in the miracle of Christ. So what, what would you add as far as, um, what is distorted, evil, false? I think the movie is guilty of the charge of kind of rolling around in expressions of the, the filth that it's rightly portraying. You know, this, mm-hmm. this movie has a child molester in it. There are child molesters. I don't know that you need to walk through the, you know, the, the encounter a predator has with a child right up to the very cusp of physical assault mm-hmm. the way this mm-hmm. movie does, you know? Yeah. Now I'm going to qualify that a little bit. I think it's pretty powerful and it says something true about the world to, to have to sit there while uh, uh, a monster, a uh, human monster uses a knife to carve on the body of a vulnerable human. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of inconsistent here, I guess, but there's just some things that I think you can make a, a powerful point about. Uh, and then there's some that you go a little bit further to show so that it builds empathy and sort of forces you to deal with what's happening here. Right. So if I knew what was happening to Beverly by her dad, but had seen a bully take Ben over the rails with a knife, I think I'm in a better place because both of those require me to understand what it's like to be vulnerable and to be victimized. But one kind of exposes us to a darkness of the world that I don't think we need more portrayal of in cinema. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't thread the needle and say you should do this and you should not do that. And I think Muschietti has told a very powerful story. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think there there's a sense I have that some of this was a little too fleshed out in what mm-hmm. we saw on screen. I would guess that they're probably trying to maybe empower people who are in those situations to overcome perhaps sure. I don't know I, I'd say there's some because he like you said he pushes it to the pushes it to the line and then draws back right well she kicks um, him and gets away which we're all rejoicing and then like when she swings the top of the toilet at his head uh, I don't know that I've ever rooted for a devastating concussion more than in that moment <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean again oh, yeah. with that like they've played it out already we've seen him accost her in the hallway and creepily mm-hmm. run his hands through her hair and he yeah. talks about going through her underwear drawer you know like there's just some of this relax Okay, we we get it, man. We we get it. She's yeah. sexually vulnerable and under threat. But I don't have to live that out some more. I think you know people who particularly see violence as something that 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 humans don't need to see much of to to thrive or or to see the effects of death to thrive. There's there's quite a bit of like ghost kids and decayed bodies and that Judith creature that comes out of the wall. I think some people are going to look at that and go, man, this is just visually over the top, and and mm. you can't justify. I'm not sure where I'm at on that, but I think this film is open to the accusation. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it does. Um, let, let's talk about how the gospel applies here, Jared. And I'll, you know, I've been doing some talking here recently. You take it away. What do you think the yeah. gospel application is? Um, I think that we, not the world, is our is our greatest enemy. You know, as mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, when I look in the mirror, it is often looking back at me. And and um, so if we're to be saved, it's not going to be found in us. Our friends, our community cannot save us. You know, every community is full of its own versions of it. It 
it cannot save itself from it. You know, we cannot save ourselves because we are it. You know, our our its other its cannot save us either. Our, our salvation must be found in someone outside of us who is not it. And and you know, once once I repented and believed in Christ, you know, he I've been adopted into his kingdom and he is conforming me to a different image. You know, so I was made in God's image and corrupted um, in the image of Adam, but still the the image of God is still present in me and present in humanity. But, you know, I'm being conformed in Christ into an even greater image than that was originally in Adam. You know, our salvation is found in someone who is not a monster, but someone who's treated like a monster. You know, think of, I was considering this, thinking of John 3.16 in light of this reality. You know, if we are as bad as the Bible says, you know, as, if sinners are, are deserving of eternal righteous torment in hell, as the Bible says. Think of John 3.16 in light of this reality. Think of God looking at his creation and looking at a, at a world not a full of innocent doves like we often think of ourselves, but a, a world full of killer clowns like it. A world full predators, of Predators, right. I mean, we're, yeah, we're predators, yeah. we prey on as many weaker people as we can find. Yeah, and, and we're selfish and self-serving yeah. and in rebellion against God. And, and God looks upon those it creatures and has compassion free freely choosing you know to save to send his son as a sacrifice for his people that all those who repent and believe he they'll they'll no longer be monsters no no he'll make them look like his son he'll make them sons and daughters you know we often think of ourselves as innocent doves but Jesus didn't die for innocent doves he died for sinners he died for monsters and and he was treated like a monster so that we could be treated like sons and daughters of God amen uh, seated at his table no longer monstrous right but wrapped in the the robes of yes. righteousness that are befitting of of his household amen amen uh, I'll tell you something that I mentioned GK Chesterton earlier uh, something that that came to my mind is one of his most famous quotes I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you it's from his essay red angel in tremendous trifles talking about fairy tales one of the things this this story does for me is reminds me of evil it reminds me that evil is not ultimate that as much as I've come to think of it as ultimate I mean I'm, I'm a cynical dude I'm a pessimistic dude but this text that Stephen King wrote and that Muschietti brought to the screen unintentionally maybe reminds me that at the end of the day evil does not win Chester said fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly that is in the child already because it is in the world already fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of a goblin what fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of the goblin. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him for a series of clear pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit, that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God, that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. Mm. Pennywise lives on fear and he mm-hmm. looks to be ultimately powerful, but he's shown mm-hmm. to be subject to defeat by mere children. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to go too grandiose, but I just, I can't help but picture the, you know, the, the cosmic 
arraignment of the enemies of God, facing mm-hmm. an army led by one whose robe is dipped in blood, mm-hmm. and the 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 children sitting on horses behind him never lift their hands at all. Mm-hmm. You know, different from the Losers Club, but nonetheless, they never lift their hands at all, and they watch as this evil that has been so much part of their lives as long as they've been alive, and the world as long as the world's been around, basically gets destroyed by not even a sword stroke. I mean, I know there's a sword, but it comes from mm-hmm. his mouth. It's by the word yeah. of his power. Yeah. You know, uh, Luther said it in a mighty fortress is our God. One little word will fail yeah. him. It's weird, I guess, it, particularly if you don't think horror movies are fit for Christian consumption. But man, this movie reminds me that this story that looks like a horror story mm-hmm. ends up becoming a comedy. And I mean, comedy in the classical sense. There is, you know, this story ends in a wedding and in a happily ever after. That's a great point, man. You know, you, you bringing that up actually reminds me of the end of Isaiah 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth, so this is in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You know, that, that sound, that's amazing, right? All flesh coming and worshiping before the Lord. But then the final verse says this, and they shall go out. So all these people that come and worship before the Lord, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I mean, my goodness. You know, how the Bible portrays the enemies of God in the end? I mean, that, that it, it, that's a real horror story. Absolutely. Worse than anything you've seen, worse than anything you've seen on the big screen, or in any war known to man. Here, here. But uh, again, it, it's, it's a horrific um, it's a horrific act. Uh, and I mean act in the sense of a play, right? That there is this period of the story that is horror and God in his mastery over all things turns that into part of the, the most beautiful comedy that ends in in, in in a way that is much better than we could have ever dreamed or dared to hope. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's because he's an incredible storyteller. You know, we mm-hmm. talked off air about Indy Wilson who's a, who's a, an author I like to read. He makes the point that in, in a fallen world, the black marks are the ones that help us to appreciate the white space. Mm. And that's just how storytelling has to be. That's how art has to be in a fallen world. And that, what you just described, uh, uh, bodies and the the carnage thereof, that's a black line. But it Mm -hmm. sure helps me to appreciate the white space of adopted children from every every ethnic group that's ever existed, you know, uh, in the gospel Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, sitting at a table, having dinner as the bride of the groom, you know. I, I sure see it more beautifully because of it. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, anything we've failed to cover here? No, I think we're ready to, to finish up. All right, man. So, guys, that's our thoughts on 2017's It. As I mentioned, I'm a fan. Don't want to speak on Jared's behalf, but I think we both saw this uh, as a very powerful story that was well worth considering in light of God's glory uh, in the face of Jesus Christ. Hope you found it profitable. We'd love to hear your feedback, so you can get to us at pccdpod.com or you can reach us on Twitter at pccdpod. Pod. That's Pop Culture Quorum Deo Pod, the initials there. So PCCD Pod on Twitter. Or you can reach out to us individually. I'm at Right Jeff on most social media platforms. Jared, where are you at? I'm on Twitter. I am at Jared H. Moore. And on, um, you can reach me at my website, jaredmore.exaltchrist.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. I actually have another podcast as well that I do called All Truth is God's Truth. You can check that out as well. We hope 
hope that you've enjoyed uh, this episode and we hope to have many more episodes coming this year. Please uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and subscribe for more episodes in the future as we continue to interact with artifacts from pop culture. You're here. We'll talk to you guys next time on Pop Culture Quorum Dale.